You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Well, welcome, everyone. This is the Mosaic Moment on PPI's Radically Pragmatic podcast. My name is Jasmine Stoughton, and I am the manager of the Mosaic Economic Project. So I'll go ahead and just give a really brief overview of what Mosaic is, and then we will introduce our guests and talk about the topic for today. So the Mosaic Economic Project brings together a network of diverse women experts. These are experts in economics and technology broadly, and these are fields where women's perspectives are grossly underrepresented. Um, And essentially, we train women who want to talk about policy and engage in meaningful policy conversations. Um, And we particularly focus on Congress and the media. So just making sure that they are equipped with the knowledge and skills to go out there um, and influence policy. So that's a little bit of what we do. I'll start by introducing Emily Egan. Emily Egan is a former Mosaic cohort member. She was part of the first cohort that we graduated back in December of 2020. Um, So Emily is the Director of Strategic Initiatives um, at the Albert LePage Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Tulane University. And there she designs and develops programs that serve the students, the alumni, and the founders. And in this role, Emily also assisted in the launch of the Greater New Orleans Startup Report, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And it serves as a regional benchmark initiative um, that essentially measures the startup activity in New Orleans um, in the greater area. We also have today Anne Marshall Tilton, who is the Community Engagement Manager at the Albert LePage Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Tulane. Anne Marshall is a writer, a strategic thinker, and she strives to share Tulane's research and resources with the New Orleans community. Her role at the LePage Center is to oversee the Greater New Orleans Startup Report, which is what we'll be talking about today. Um, and she also works more specifically on the annual research initiative piece of it. Um, so she's aiming to provide a comprehensive understanding of the factors driving the success uh, for the startups and early stage companies in the region. We also have Crystal Swan, who is the co-founder of Mosaic and also a PPI senior fellow. Crystal, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, great. Uh, yes, I'm a senior policy fellow at Mosaic and was uh, at the beginning of the cre- of the creation of Mosaic. So it's very exciting to see Emily, uh, who was a part of our first cohort, uh, our test subjects, <laughs> <laughs> back in here having a great conversation. Uh, the, the reason I'm because Jasmine's running the show here, the one of the things I wanted to kind of uh, talk about in our interest in this from uh, from PPI's perspective is we are launching a Metro Federalism Caucus. We have a new project underway looking at how do we improve the federal and local relationship as it relates to entrepreneurship and small businesses. So this is this report is is sort of a microcosm of a of a larger conversation that we're hoping to follow up with both of you on a little bit later. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we want to find out ways in which we can strengthen those relationships. How do we make it easier for entrepreneurs and small businesses to get started? 
what are some of the pieces that need to be in place, whether it's around housing, transportation, healthcare, um, what are some of the core pillars that that we can look at and examine with relation to the Metro federal um, engagement that uh, could be improved. So that's why I'm here and I'm very excited about this report and, and reading this. So I will turn it back over to Jasmine. Thank you for the time. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the third report that you all have put out. That's correct. Okay. So the first question that I have for both of y'all um, is, so the 2021 Greater New Orleans Startup Report shows a general increase in equity financing. Um, and we're talking about venture capital, we're talking about angel investment and convertible debt during this past year. So first, before we get into the questions, could one of y'all or both of y'all walk us through just a really brief description of what, um, or definition of angel investments and convertible debt for people who might not know those terms? Sure. I'm happy to take a jump at that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, at the earliest stages, you're talking about convertible debt, right? And that's typically those, that is for equity, but it is, it is, it's on a balance sheet as debt until it converts to equity. So mm -hmm. an angel investor or an early stage investor will provide, you know, a certain amount of money. It's usually pretty low and, you know, for a certain equity stake, but they don't get that equity until the person raises a qualifying round. And so at which point in time, if they do, then it converts to equity. Um, if they don't, they don't, right? It's it's probably mm -hmm. the riskiest capital that you're going to get. And generally speaking, they're, you know, it's it's a win if they if they get the money back, right? On angel investors, it's a little bit different and, and it depends on when where they are. So angel investors will invest in a, in a convertible round, but generally speaking, will also um, invest in, you know, larger stages, you know, million dollars on up. Okay. Um, they are typically, they can be individuals that are just solely acting on their own, or they can act, um, in a, in a group, right? So in mm -hmm. New Orleans, we have the New Orleans Angel Fund. Um, and so that's a group of angel investors that will sort of pool their money together and, and invest in it. It's a way to sort of, um, to expand the access and to expand the, the amount of money that can be provided. And then um, venture capital, the capitalists, and then even at the larger scale, private equity are generally operating on behalf of firms and are usually in the A, B, and C rounds of, mm -hmm. uh, of funding and those typically have larger equity stakes um, because there's larger money and that the the intention and the desire to make money off of those investments is much greater um, mm -hmm. and they see them they look at risk differently than one a person who's maybe giving money in a convertible round okay um, so that would be kind of my thing and marshall if you have any kind of other <laughs> insights you want to provide <laughs> no that's, that's basically it I think the key when we're thinking about this data is mm -hmm. that all of these sort of funding mechanisms are the founders sort of giving away some stake in their company um, mm -hmm. in exchange for money. So um, they're not going to be paying this back like they would a loan. Um, they're actually just giving some ownership stake in their company. I think that's a really key piece, too, because that does set it apart from um, – what we think of as just traditional investment. So that's a that's a great definition to make at the outset. Um, and so the report shows a general increase in equity financing. And what specific evidence are we seeing for this in the New Orleans region? Yeah, so um, we're seeing just an increase in equity. So when I say, I'm going to use the term equity financing to talk about all three of those um, mm -hmm of those terms that we just discussed, that Emily just defined for us. 
So we're seeing a general increase in equity financing in terms of deal count. So like just raw number of deals has gone up. You can look at the data a couple different ways. If you compare the survey respondents who responded in both 2020 and in 2021, um, you'll see that there was actually a 21% increase in deal count between those two years, which is, is pretty, pretty high, I would say. The other sort of support, I would say supporting kind of data points for that um, are the more founders raised a million or more in equity investment this past year as well. So in 2020, we had 42% of our founders who had raised equity financing said that they raised over a million dollars. Mm -hmm. In 2021, 57% yeah. of those founders said that they raised over a million dollars. So that tells us that not only is deal count going up, but the amount of money raised is also going up. Right. In addition, founders in the New Orleans area are also getting more capital from outside of the region. And what that means to us is that we're kind of getting, these companies are getting more attention. Um, which is, is typically sort of validating for the company that they're going in some sort of direction that's getting the attention of investors that they maybe not, maybe wouldn't be typically in front of. So those are kind of our three main supporting data points for just the, the general increase. And I think it's important to, to note, so Anne Marshall talks about this, you know, it speaks to the quality of companies that, that are developing here. What's important to note about a city like New Orleans, because there's a lot of us that are similar to this, is where you see these increases. The reason why it's noteworthy is because of that, you know, that pesky statistic that's that exists where you're saying, it's, I think it's when you're talking, when you add in Texas, I think it's over 80% of all venture capital goes to four states. And so, right. you know, busting that share is really um is really important. And that's something in New Orleans specifically that we've we've heard a lot in terms of access to capital. And so the idea that they are, not only is there, you know, we have a few more capital providers here than we did a few years ago, but the data also supports, as Anna Marshall was talking about, is coming from outside as well. Yeah. And that's huge. Um, and though that kind of momentum we wanna, we wanna build upon um, with that. But I also think, and I, I think we talked about this on the last podcast too, which was that, um, that virtual element that we're existing in right now is actually benefiting the non-premier markets, I guess is the best way to say it, um, mm -hmm. or these sort of emerging outside of those four states. Because of that, you can access these investors easier. They don't have to figure out how am I going to justify a trip down to a specific city where I don't have that many opportunities for meetings. Whereas I know that if I go to New York, I'm going to build out all the, you know, I'm going to have a full day's worth of meetings with all these companies, but all now it is just, it's a zoom meeting. Right. And so I think it, it makes it easier. And that's something that I do hope. And I think we talked about this last time, which is, I do hope continues um, knowing that sort of this, this industry in terms of investing is such an in-person networked group that that access though continues, that it doesn't, the virtual, the benefits of the virtual continue on to allow access for this, for the cities that are, that are not within those four, you know, four states. Yeah. And so that leads me to my next question with this equity financing, do you see this as a broader trend as well, you know, across the U.S., not just in the four states that do receive the majority of the funding? Yeah. So 
PitchBook actually reported that deal value increased by 16% nationwide um, in 2020. So there has been increased um, venture capital in general. So it's not just New Orleans, but you know, I think it's positive that we are as a non sort of primary market, I guess that Emily just talked about, we are participating in that and we're right there with the rest of the country. That's fantastic. As a follow-up to this equity financing piece, do you have any thoughts as to why this increase may be happening? So Emily, Emily sort of just answered that. Um, I, I definitely think it has to do a lot with the pandemic culture shift as it relates to, you know, being able to do Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. I do also think that our region has some positive momentum going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's actually some evidence for that that sort of came out around the same time that our report came out, two of New Orleans's largest software companies, Level Set and Lucid, recently exited um, Level Set for $500 million and Lucid for $1.1 billion. Um, and so I think that that speaks to just some general positive momentum that was going on here. Mm -hmm. In addition to those companies, we've also had a number of other exits Mm -hmm. um, in the food and beverage space. There was Big Easy Bucha. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a company, Geocent. Um, Mm -hmm. Emily, I think, are there a couple others that I'm missing? Yeah, there's one. um, It's a it's a solar company that sold to ADT. There's a there are there's a handful. It it got to the point where we were, you know, it all kind of came within a couple of months of each other. And we would joke, be like, we haven't had an exit. We went from like, you know, a dr- complete dry spell to not having an exit, you know, to having almost exits, you know, every couple of weeks. But I think it also speaks to the general uh, maturation process of uh, an ecosystem, right? And mm-hmm. so New Orleans at, from an ecosystem is still relatively young. And I think we, we can forget that sometimes um, because, you know, we've been, you know, everyone it's kind of that immediacy you want everything now 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 right um but we have you know especially when you think about post katrina you know we're still within the early stages of an ecosystem development it takes decades right and so for us in this sort of world of that we talk with entrepreneurs we talk with investors and you know people would refer to new orleans as maybe kind of the next silicon valley and you don't necessarily care for that comparison because it's it's a different it's a different set of circumstances we are much further you know like in terms of our development not in terms of like because we don't have it but in terms of just time in general we're you know only within you know this century has this ecosystem been um really in its development stages and so i think we would hear all the time like oh when are you guys going to have your exit or you're not you're not a true ecosystem until you have a a unicorn and all these things and so it's great it's great to have these moments where we can say like oh we've got it now we've we've got this momentum to build on but it's also really important to sort of note that that's sort of it was almost it took a while to get there but it didn't take as long as you think it just felt like it did because you're in it every day and it's a great sort of moment for us to say like we are we're on our way and there is, as Man Marshall said, there's momentum to build upon with this um, and what that means for the broader business community in terms of the, the money that will come back into the city, whether it's through creation of new investors, whether it's um, new just eyes looking at New Orleans, seeing that this is something that, you know, you had almost, you know, 
over a billion dollars, $1.5 billion worth of exits within a month of each other. Like that's, that's significant. And that's not something if you would have asked, if, you know, how long that was, a you know, how long we were away from that, I would have said we were still a few years. So I think it's, it's great to see. It just, just in case there aren't members of our audience that understands what an exit is, can you guys define that just a little bit? <laughs> because when I, Sorry I, about that. I do know what it is, but it took me a second because your brain processes it. Sure. Yeah. So an exit just means that um, a company sold to a larger company. So um, a startup like Level Set, they're a construction related software company. They sold to a larger construction related software company that now, you know, they, they now have mutual ownership stake in. Um, but it's, it's sort of seen as for in the startup world, um, there's basically two ways that you can, you can sort of be successful. One is to have an exit, like what we just talked about. Um, the other is to have an IPO, um, mm -hmm. which would mean that you would go, um, onto the stock, you know, you would sell your stock publicly. And the benefit to that, and this took me a while to sort of understand why it was important, because you hear about this so much about like, oh, well, you need to have an exit. Like, why? Why does it matter? Um, <laughs> like, why is this so? And it is actually really important because what it does is you're going to have those early stage, you know, founding team members that are going to benefit financially from this exit. They will then go on to either start another company. Um, or they maybe take a little bit of a break and then they become investors with their with the new uh, wealth that they've created. But it it gets put back in to the to the ecosystem. And so it just it begets, you know, exits beget exits. Right. Or it, it creates this sort of what we you know, the term that's being used a lot is the sort of flywheel. Right. It, mm -hmm. it creates this cycle of incubating entrepreneurial talent within a startup is the idea is that these founding team members or other members of these teams will now go off and create their own companies, hopefully in New Orleans, maybe in other places. But the idea being that they are, um, it's, it's continuing to create that economic development, those economic opportunities with that sort of that success, um, which I think is, is important in that I don't think people necessarily fully grasp. And like I said, I didn't really fully grasp it. And until, you know, within the past, you know, six or seven years, why it's, you know, why it's important. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for defining it because I'm sure some of our listeners are new to some of these terms. So the next question that I have for y'all is, were there any groups of entrepreneurs that were left behind in this equity financing increase? And do you have any particular thoughts on why they were left behind? Sure. Yeah. So our data showed that in the greater New Orleans region, women are accessing these equity financing vehicles at about half the rate as men. So they're really not using these things as often. Um, and that's, by the way, that's actually not um, just a New Orleans trend. We recently hosted um, a panel discussion at the LePage Center um, with some both local and national kind of entrepreneurs and investors. One of those investors was Shelly Porges with Beyond the Billion. Um, and her, she recently put out a statistic that showed that nationwide, so I mentioned that there was a 16% a increase nationwide in um, deal value 
for women that actually fell 3%. So mm. that means that women are actually getting a smaller piece of the venture pie um, overall. So while it's increasing, it's shrinking for women. So in terms of why this is happening, I think that First of all, if anyone wants to hear about this more, they can go listen to that panel because that's a full hour of talking about why this could be happening. Um, but some of the things that were discussed during that panel discussion were ideas like pattern matching, you know, where investors typically try to match past successful patterns, which mm -hmm. tend to typically be white men. And then just sort of the idea that women are treated differently during these pitches. Um, typically women are asked questions sort of about like, what are the risks of your, of your business? What are the or risks of this investment versus men who are asked about the opportunity? Let's see, Emily, what, what else, do you have any other tidbits you want to share about that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, we also, there's a Harvard business review study that was done a few years ago that talked about, you know, women and, and specifically one actually before getting to that one of our panelists and she mentions this on the panel, which you can find at GNOStartupReport.com. But she mentioned the fact so she one of our founders who was on the panel, she has a male co-founder and she is often asked and she mentions this on the panel often asked if she and her co-founder are dating in the panel, she talks, she asks if those questions, she always will respond to the investors asking if they ask the same questions to, to male co-founders. And the idea is that it's just, it's approached differently. And then there, in this Harvard mm -hmm. Business Review study, they were talking about um, how they did identical pitches. So the content of the, the pitch was the same, the slides were the same. And in fact, regardless of the gender of the judges of this pitch, the males were seen as favorable over females mm -hmm. and but the content exact was exactly the same and so you know it's just it's it's looking at ways that you can so the idea was how do you eliminate how do you solve for that and in certain cases what they were arguing was getting rid of the pitch entirely but i think the fundamental argument is also like why does you know if if all things being equal what are the you know why wouldn't they be getting it and it's it's just it's a it's an unconscious bias, right? And so how you can approach that, and that obviously exists for people, you know, beyond um, just just women, it is obviously affects people of color even more so. And, you know, we don't, our, and Ann Marshall can speak to this, our data set wasn't large enough, but we can hypothesize that our data as it relates to females getting access to investment is probably even significantly less. And we could hypothesize that it would be even less than um, for, for female founders of color, uh, just due to just the general disparities that exist in that sense. Absolutely, and I would add that we, so basically the reason we don't break out women of color in our report is because the data set is too small. We only have two women of color who've raised equity financing at all um, in our region. And so in order to, and that's in our data set. So um, in order to break that out, that would compromise their anonymity, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but, but I think the fact that we only have two um, kind of does say something, right? 
Yeah, and I, I highly recommend. We'll put it in the show notes as well. A link to the um, to the panel on gender equity um, or gender gaps in the equity financing uh, piece of that report because the panel was one of the best I've seen in a long time. Not only did they go into the findings, but I felt like it answered a lot of questions that I had after the first podcast that we did together, Emily, because all my questions were around, okay, we we have these these gaps, these huge gender gaps in venture capital, but if if we have a, a female entrepreneur listening or a black woman who wants to be an entrepreneur and is trying to get venture capital, like where should she go from here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that panel does a really great job of answering those questions directly and giving some concrete advice and um, for both sides of it, right? So advice for entrepreneurs and how they can really synthesize their message and their pitch to get an outcome that they're looking for. But also on the other side, people who have the power to write the checks. Um, it does a really great dive into some tactics that that they've used in their experience or that they've seen in their experience to kind of even that playing field, but also just patterns that they see in in ways that women can get more more funding. So your data also found a racial disparity in access to the PPP COVID relief program. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, then we can kind of go into theories, but really what what did you guys find in the data? Sure. Yeah. So in our data, we saw that 95% of white founders who applied for the PPP uh, received that uh, relief, whereas mm-hmm. of founders of color who applied for the PPP received it. So that's a, that's a pretty big gap. What I'd say about that, I think it, it ties in nicely to one of our findings from actually last year's report, the 2020 um, greater new Orleans startup report. So um, by the way, there have been um, quite a few articles in the New York times and some other media outlets documenting this unequal access to the PPP along racial lines. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the hypotheses thrown out by many of those articles is that this disparity stems from banks that are choosing to issue the funds. So for the PPP, you have to apply through a bank. Um, So that makes it a little bit different from some of the other forms of COVID relief. So banks have been issuing funds only to established clients rather than servicing new clients on the PPP. So in the 2020 Greater New Orleans Startup Report, we saw that um, BIPOC, so um, Black Indigenous People of Color founded firms were less likely than white founded firms to have used traditional bank loans to fund their operations. So, and that was, 8% of founders of color had used um, bank loans versus 16% of white founders. So what that tells us, you know, and if you, if you put those kind of two statistics together, that really supports that hypothesis that has been put forward. Just that if these founders aren't accessing bank loans, that suggests that they don't have an existing relationship, which then, you know, makes a lot of sense why they're not able to access the PPP at the same rate as white founders. Yeah, that's a a very helpful insight. Can you talk, uh, speak to a little bit back to the venture capital piece, but not not that specifically because you said that would sort of identify 
the specific companies, but in terms of the companies that you examined in this report, when you look at BIPOC companies, what were the industries? What tended to be the industries? Were they industries that were, were they industries that relied on um, different types of financial transactions or were they industries that were in a different space? I'm very curious about what the, what they looked like. So um, I can speak to the BIPOC firms in general, not necessarily to the BIPOC firms that access venture capital. Um, but in general, um, I would say that BIPOC founded firms skew into the hospitality industry, which in New Orleans is a, is a really big industry in general. Um, but that would be, you know, sort of like restaurant food services, kind of hotel type services, tour companies that that would be, I would say, I, I'd say that's the primary. That would be the sort of biggest slice of the pie for BIPOC. And I think, again, that speaks to those are some types of businesses that you may be able to get started without a loan or without a very big loan. Um, and so that, again, sort of harkens back to what I was just talking about with the banking relationships. All right. Well, we are coming up on time. Um, is there anything that we didn't ask that you'd like us to touch on before we um, wrap up or anything that else that you'd like to add about the report? Um, if you're interested in checking it out, um, you can head to gnostartupreport.com. You'll see the report there, and you can also access the video of that panel discussion we referenced there as well. That's we perfect. start data collection for the 2022 one uh, in about a month and a half, so it's it starts back up uh, again. So we're we're excited to see what uh, what new information uh, we have, and I think that what our goal is to really, you know, it's always been used as a way if we can measure the benchmark, but because we have this, you know, we have this opportunity to be able to showcase where, how we're progressing with COVID recovery. You know, our hope is to be able to use this as a way to, to benchmark how we're progressing through that specifically as well. So overall, we have a lot of recovery that we have to focus on, but to be able to sort of, to say to local city governments, state governments saying in this region, this is how things are looking. Um, mm -hmm. It's gonna be really, I think, valuable. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast again. Um, we'll link all of the the things that we talked about today um, in the show notes. And we'll also link to the first episode that we did um, because this is kind of a callback to that. So <laughs> thank you both so, so much for being here. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.